You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, comrades, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast this week is Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky. Uh, Lindsay is a historian of early America, the presidency and the government, and especially the president's cabinet. Um, she just came out with a new book in April. It's called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Uh, I just read it over the past couple weeks, and it's a really, really great read. I highly recommend it if you're interested in sort of early revolutionary era American history, if you're interested in George Washington or Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Lindsay does a great job of, of not just telling you the history of the cabinet and how the cabinet came into being, but creating the environment that all this was happening in. You get a much better sense of what the political environment was like, and I found that incredibly valuable. Um, Lindsay's book, I don't think it's gotten as much publicity as it should because it came out on April 7th, 2020, right in the middle of COVID-19. I sympathize with Lindsay on that because we launched Perch Perspectives right into the middle of a global pandemic as well. Um, so I'm really grateful for Lindsay for coming on the podcast and sharing some of her insights with our listeners. And I'd encourage listeners uh, to check out the book, buy it on Amazon, check it out on Kindle, all that other kind of good stuff. It is money well spent. Just a note that we recorded this on October 16th and it will be publishing on November 2nd, so the day before the US presidential election. I, I really do think this is gonna be one of the most consequential US presidential elections in history, certainly the most consequential in my own lifetime, in part because the policy differences are just so stark. Um, I look at this mostly from a foreign policy perspective, and even there, um, you sort of have to be in a holding pattern because the way that a President Trump administration would move forward is going to be radically different than how a Biden administration would govern. Uh, So I hope this conversation with Lindsay gives you a little bit more historical context and some of the things around the American presidency. A reminder, if you're thinking about you know, what's your business or how you need to work through foreign policy implications of the election results, check us out at perchperspectives.com. There's a twice a week free newsletter. There's this podcast, which we would love if you would go and rate on iTunes or wherever you're listening to it to. Um, also, as always, you can write to us at info at perchperspectives.com. I read everything that comes in and I try to reply to everything. You can write in uh, you know, with, with your latest news about what your dog ate for breakfast or <laughs> maximally if you know someone or want to connect us with someone who uh, could use some help with geopolitical risk management, which is the business that we're in. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get on to the good stuff with Lindsay. Okay, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. I don't even really know where to start because there's so many interesting details in this book. I I mean, history can sometimes be boring, but you you managed to really create kind of an environment for me when I was reading the book. Um, For instance, I'd be happy to read just a three-volume omnibus just on Charles Lee's dogs based on what you were saying sort of of in the book. I I hope that's what you're working on next. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I really wanted the book to be accessible to people and enjoyable. I didn't want anyone to feel like they were slogging through a textbook. So it's always really gratifying to hear when people felt like that paid off. No, I, I think you succeeded in doing that. And it's more remarkable considering how far back you had to go. But the the one thing that kind of struck out to me, and I'm, I consider myself an American history nerd in some senses, although I'm, I'm more familiar with Civil War stuff, but um, I, I really didn't have any clue that the cabinet itself was seen as this intensely British thing, and that there was a lot of reticence around Washington having a cabinet because the, the British cabinet was seen 
as sort of being the real, I don't know, evil mastermind behind everything the British Empire did and leading up to the revolution. Um, there's even one point in there where you talk about Thomas Jefferson sort of hurling this insult at Alexander Hamilton, calling him Robert Walpole, as if that's like the worst thing that you could possibly <laughs> say about someone. So can you just talk a little bit and tell listeners about kind of where that idea comes from? Like why, why was the cabinet seen as a British thing? And why did Washington have to go through so many different hoops before he could eventually say, you know what, like the British do this because it's the best way to do things? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think it's so important when we read history books or when we study historical figures, we tend to forget that they don't just exist in a vacuum and that the event that we're looking at didn't just pop up out of nowhere, but instead they're, you know, humans like the rest of us and they're informed by what came before them and what other experiences they've had. And most of the people who were responsible for crafting the constitution and then served in office in the first administration had been involved in some way in the revolution. And so they were intimately familiar with the British system because, of course, before the revolution, they were British colonists and they considered themselves to be the most proud of British colonists. They loved their lineage and they loved the king and the queen and the royal family. And so they felt a real deep betrayal because they blamed the British cabinet for basically corrupting the king against the colonies. And one of the reasons that the British cabinet was so suspicious to them was because there wasn't a whole lot of transparency about what was going on. So in Parliament, when Parliament met and there was a session, usually journalists would go in and take notes and then report it, and it would be printed in a British newspaper and then carried over the Atlantic and reprinted in an American newspaper. So they were able to have some documentation about what was being said and who was advocating which policy. But in the British cabinet, they didn't really know, first of all, who even was in it, because technically it was a smaller offshoot of the Privy Council. And um, the membership sort of shifted depending on who the king felt like talking to at any given moment. It wasn't clear who held power and who was making the decisions. And the whole concept of a British cabinet was really that it was like this private sort of secretive thing. And so Americans were really distrusting of that sort of notion. And when time came to actually craft the executive branch, they did not want to replicate that sort of system. And in fact, Charles Pinckney proposed a cabinet at the Constitutional Convention that looked almost identical to the one that ended up occurring in Washington's administration, and they rejected it because they didn't want to put in place that sort of um, institutionalized secrecy or um, the opportunity for there to be a cabal or corruption or for the president to be surrounded by his cronies. And instead, they really wanted the Senate to be an advisory body because they were indirectly elected through the state legislatures and were considered much safer advisors. So the British cabinet was really sort of in the back of their minds all of the time. And, um, you know, it's, this is one of those tricky things about history, as you said, it, you know, it's hundred years, hundreds of years ago. And Washington didn't write down how careful he was to try and avoid comparisons to the British cabinet. But I believe deeply that it was on his mind and it was on the minds of the other secretaries just because of how careful they were to craft their actions in every other way that they lived. I think it would have been impossible to not have done so in this one instance as well. So they worked long and hard to try and come up with a solution. And eventually they decided that these in-person meetings were really essential. Um, but there were a few key differences with the British cabinet that were really important, primarily being that 
the American secretaries did not have a position in Congress, whereas all of the British cabinet ministers were part of parliament. Yeah, well, first of all, it's interesting that you say about the American colonists sort of being the most patriotic. I don't even know if we can use the word nationalistic about the British Empire at that point. And it seems like there's some kind of Stockholm syndrome with with colonies in general with the British Empire, because the Scottish after the Acts of Union also became like the most sort of full throated, barrel chested advocates of the empire. But so that's just kind of an interesting kind of aside. But I I, th- I think that um, I think your point is really proved that we don't need Washington to say anything because you you kind of go through in the book how, you know, Washington first, he tries out the Senate, the idea of the Senate being able to be flexible enough to supply um advice to the United States executive about foreign policy seems laughable now. It seems like it was laughable then too. Um, but then they had, he had like a prime minister's council. And then at one point you talk about how Washington is even trying to sort of use the Supreme court as a, as a stand in for the cabinet. Yeah. I mean, he tried so many different options and I think that he was a, a, a cabinet type concept was always sort of on his mind because he had worked with councils of war during the revolution and that had been really effective. And he had found it really beneficial to be able to talk to his officers and his aides de camp and to get their input about big decisions and strategic choices. And so it was, it would have been a natural choice for him to do that from the beginning. And I think the fact that he waited two and a half years before convening a cabinet meeting demonstrates how much he was trying not to. Yeah, and, and we'll get into a little bit later about whether it was successful or not. But another thing you talked about um, and that you just mentioned was this idea of about just the idea of the cabinet and the differences between the American cabinet and the British cabinet that, that arose. And one of the other themes that sort of pops up um, throughout the course of your book is especially Washington's emphasis on this notion of Republican virtue and, and wanting Republican virtue. He didn't just want people to think of him as having Republican virtue. He wanted everybody he was connected to to have Republican virtue. The the analogy is sort of, it's like when um, when the National Basketball Association wants their players to put on a suit and tie before a game. They, they, they want everybody to sort of have a, a, a look and feel to them and a way of approaching. Um, and, and it seems to me that that's something that has maybe been lost or, or may, do you think it's fair to say that that's been lost over time? Because it seems to me that over time, the cabinet has gone from reflecting Republican virtue or trying to sort of be in touch with the people to, as you sort of said, it, it's become a coterie of sort of people who are connected to presidents as you go throughout history in a way that, I mean, they were people who were connected to Washington, but he also seemed to care about their presentation in a way that I can't really think other folks have cared about their cabinet presenting themselves. Is, is that a fair assessment? I think yes and no. I mean, definitely you're right that he was obsessed with Republican virtue and wanted everyone in the administration to reflect that sort of virtuous principles so that the nation would have those virtuous principles. And um, he didn't really have to push that hard because so many of the early office holders shared that same concern and they understood that in order for the country to work, and for it to instill respect from its both its citizens, but also foreign dignitaries, there had to be this level of virtuous behavior. But it was also an expectation at the time that the best men, and by best, I mean most virtuous and most capable, would serve and would serve as a form of self-sacrifice. And that was really the ethos of what government and social sort of social structuring was all about. Of course, that has shifted a great deal because politics is now considered 
a profession as opposed to a calling in some cases. And the people that we expect to sort of be the best people, we often expect them to go into business or industry or law or medicine. And so there isn't that same sense of virtuous self-sacrifice that was expected um, of the first politicians and first office holders. That being said, I do think that it's really important to recognize that most administrations want to avoid cabinet scandal, and they want their secretaries to look good and to reflect well on the administration. It's just common sense. You don't want you know, uh, news stories to be undermining your policy or taking attention away from the things that you're trying to do. And so by and large, when secretaries have left office, they've worked hard with the administration to try and make sure that that transition is smooth and you know peaceful and not disruptive. Of course, there are exceptions, but by and large, presidents have tried to make sure that the secretaries reflect well on their administration. I think also one of the reasons that the cabinet worked for Washington, though, was that it seems to me that Washington had more of that self-sacrificing ethos than anybody else did. I mean, a lot of the other cabinet members participated in the revolution. They pledged their lives in sacred honor and yada, yada, yada to the, to the new republic. But Washington was the one who really, who really lived that, it sounds like. And he was able to, to use the cabinet to let a lot of these really smart guys who had a lot of experience talk to each other, argue with each other, um, and build real expertise for him and real advice for him and then use it in a way that I, I'm not sure if any of the others had been that first president, if they could have done it too. There was, uh, I don't know if that speaks to Washington's sort of self-assuredness and confidence in himself, or it was just a unique character trait. But it seems to me that in the if, if Jefferson had been first, for instance, or somebody like Hamilton had been first, the institution probably would have evolved a lot differently. If it had evolved at all, it might have turned into something completely unrecognizable. I think that's an interesting observation. Uh, Washington really didn't want to be president. And um, I think some people think that he was sort of being self-deprecating when he wrote that. But I genuinely believe that he had no desire to serve. He was tired. He had been away from Mount Vernon for eight years during the revolution and had only been home for two nights. So he desperately just kind of wanted to stay home. And, you know, he had also sort of made this big scene about retiring and returning his commission to Congress and how he felt that it was really important for people to, you know, um, retire and, and give up power. And so he was worried that going back into office would seem hypocritical or would seem like he was trying to seize too much additional authority. And his reputation in 1787 was so stellar and so spotless that it really only had one direction that it could go. And he was worried that if he stayed in office too long, he would be criticized or he would tarnish that reputation he had worked long and hard to build. That being said, he understood that really no one else could fill that position first. That sounds a little bit hyperbolic, perhaps, but I really believe that there wasn't anybody else that had the same sort of national and international stature, except for maybe Benjamin Franklin, but he was super old and in fact died in Washington's first year in office. So there just wasn't anyone else that could bring together all of the different factions and interests and regional blocks of the nation the way that Washington could. And so from very day one of his presidency, he was coming at it from this position of sacrifice and service. I also think it's important to point out at, um, at this early juncture that um, it took, I don't know, I can't do math, but it was it was not until 1933 that a woman served on the cabinet. 
Um, and you sort of alluded to the fact that it was the best men. He had the best people around him. That was, you know, white land holding men. Um, it, it took, I mean, when did the, the women got, um, they granted women the right to vote. I'm, I'm forgetting the year, early 1900s, right? The right to vote, I think, was passed in 1919 and then ratified in 1920. It still takes 13 years to get a, a woman into cabinet. I mean, I imagine that must be on your mind somewhat when you're dealing with all these old white guys. Did Was there any sense that there was any impropriety to that at all? And at what point do you think that that actually started becoming a problem, if that's a fair question? I know it's a little bit outside the bailiwick of the book. No, it's it's a really important point because um, Washington saw that he saw his cabinet as representing a diverse set of American citizens. And by 21st century standards, that's quite ridiculous because it's four white guys. But um, at the time, they were from different places in the country. They had different backgrounds. They had different educations. They had different religions. They had different factional and economic interests and affiliations. So, for example, Alexander Hamilton had cozied up to the merchant elite in New York City and other urban hubs, whereas Thomas Jefferson was a plantation-owning slave owner who um, you know, really represented the American farmer and the Western regions. And Americans saw them as those diverse people. So people felt, a lot of Americans at the time felt that the administration was working really hard to represent the different parts of the country. Now, of course, over the last 200 years, our definition of what diversity means has expanded a great deal. And as you pointed out, it wasn't until FDR appointed Frances Perkins as the Secretary of Labor that a woman actually joined the cabinet. But by and large, with a couple of exceptions, there has been an expansion and an increase in diversity in the cabinet since Washington. And most presidents view that as following Washington's precedent for good reason, because it is an opportunity to bring together the American people, to allow them to feel represented in the presidency. And also, I mean, the country is really big and it's really diverse and it is impossible for one person to understand every path that an American citizen can walk. And so if you have a diverse cabinet, you have a much better chance of actually being able to represent all American people. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. We, we think the country is big today. And I guess, you know, Washington and his cabinet officials probably thought the country was a little bit too big then, too. But yes, they um, did. When you compare their problems uh, to the problems that we have, in just in terms of size, um, it's almost sort of laughable. Though another anecdote that I loved in the book was you talked about how Washington in particular, but a lot of these cabinet officials, you know, they didn't have access to polling. They had to go out and figure out what people actually thought about them. So they have all these intricate networks of information to figure out, well, do my constituents like me or do, do these voters feel sad or do they think I'm an, uh, a jerk? Like I, I thought that was also a really interesting window into how how difficult it must have been to feel like you had a pulse on the on whatever national sentiment was in the nation. Yeah, it definitely um, helps under us understand why they were constantly in letters saying, you know, if you have any feedback for me or if you hear anything, please <laughs> let me know, because <laughs> that was the only way for them really to get a good sense of what was going on is if someone wrote them about it or passed along information. And because newspapers were a little bit less reliable and um, not always available. So they depended so heavily on that written correspondence and pleaded with people to send them news and updates as frequently as possible. You, 
you, you alluded uh, already to Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, and I, I want to dive a little bit into more into them, because um, if you've seen the musical, obviously you know that they were on opposite sides of things. Um, but you really, I mean, you drove home just how much, not just that they disliked each other personally, but ideologically, they were just totally on on different spectrums. And it almost seems when reading the book that, I mean, the birth of the of the political party system happens because Jefferson and Hamilton are at each other's throats and they can't agree on anything. And they actually start using the cabinet, especially Jefferson, I think we have to call him out on this, starts using the cabinet for his own political aims, um, stealing, well, I don't want to say stealing information, but using, you know, privileged information that he's learning about in the cabinet, passing the, passing it along to Madison or some of his other buddies and figuring out how to use it so that he can create the political outcomes that he wants. Um, and I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that you talk about by the end of Washington's presidency, he really stopped using the cabinet. There, there was sort of a period there um, where he was meeting with it regularly and really relied on it. Um, but by the end of his presidency, seems to have gone away from it and was really just consulting folks one on one because the actual value of getting everybody together was hampered because a lot of the people had left because they disagreed with each other too much and a lot of his buddies were gone. So do, do you think that that is, does that mark a failure of the cabinet? Is the cabinet in some ways responsible for institutionalizing some of those factions that weren't supposed to be there in the first place because of because the cabinet actually couldn't get on the same page with Washington? Well, that's a big question. Um, I think that there probably would have been the same political parties and the same partisan tensions and divisions regardless. It just would have taken longer. And let me explain why I think that. So Hamilton and Jefferson, I mean, first of all, their backgrounds were so diametrically opposed. Jefferson was born into a very wealthy family. He was always quite privileged. He had the best higher education that could be found on this side of the Atlantic and sort of always knew from the very beginning that unless he died, he was going to be a part of this elite Virginia gentry. Hamilton, on the other hand, was born into poverty. His mother was unmarried. She died at a young age. Of course, the story has been made quite famous by the Hamilton musical, and rightly so. And his his sort of meteoric rise is, is really quite extraordinary and is not exaggerated. So they already come from this like really diametrically opposed place. And then in the war, Jefferson serves as governor of Virginia, and then he's in France, whereas Hamilton is literally in the trenches fighting. So that continues to shape their differing sort of mental perspectives of what masculinity is supposed to be, what service is supposed to be, but also about the nation and the country. So when they both enter Washington's cabinet, not only do they have these different perspectives, but they also have radically different worldviews about what the country is supposed to be, who they are supposed to ally themselves with. Hamilton was pro-British and Jefferson was pro-France. Jefferson preferred that Americans stayed as the human farmers and stayed away from the cities because cities were corrupt and full of sin and disease and all the bad things he had seen in Europe. Whereas Hamilton wanted the country to invest in infrastructure and the military and cities were a great way to cultivate trade and foreign alliances. So they were sort of you know due for a reckoning regardless of what had happened. But because they were in the cabinet meetings together so frequently, especially starting in 1793 when the neutrality crisis broke out over a war in, in Europe, they were in the cabinet sometimes up to five days per week. They became convinced that the other was not just wrong, but actually a threat to the nation and a threat to their vision of what the republic was supposed to be. And so not only was this person sort of their personal enemy, but was a mortal enemy of the state. Mm 
And that caused them to focus on developing these political apparatus to combat that threat. And I don't think that had they been together quite as much, they would have felt that same urgency to combat what the other was doing. I think, again, they would have gotten there either way because they were never going to agree on these big issues. It just would have taken a lot longer. Now, whether or not that means the cabinet was a failure, I would say no, because Washington continued to have them meet regularly while they were in office. He didn't mind the conflict. In fact, he felt like the conflict was helpful because it made it, it gave him confidence that no matter what, he was going to hear all of the information and he was going to hear both sides and they were basically going to poke holes in each other's arguments for him. And he didn't have to do that analytical thinking on his own and he could just sit back and listen and then make a decision. The reason he stopped having cabinet meetings towards the end, as you pointed out, was that they actually left office and the people who came in as replacements, frankly, just weren't good enough. I sometimes affectionately refer to them as the B team, but... um, (laughs) You know, Washington wrote in his letters that James McHenry, who was the Secretary of War, really wasn't up to the challenges of office. And he asked, Washington asked six other people before finally settling on Timothy Pickering for Secretary of State, which Pickering knew about, by the way, which is incredibly awkward and not a great way to start a working relationship. And so it wasn't so much that he had picked people and then didn't want to have them fight. It was that he had picked people or settled on people for lack of other options And I don't think he trusted them as much. And I think he preferred to have one-on-one meetings and talk with people outside of the administration because that's what he trusted. And so what that actually meant was that the cabinet is actually really designed to be a personal advisory body for the president. And if cabinet meetings serve the president well, then that's great. And if not, then that's okay too. And that was, I think, really the legacy Washington intended to leave. Do you think that's how things work now? Is, is that the legacy that he left? It seems to me that things are much more programmatic and that you know you have seats that you have to fill no matter what uh, when you get a new administration that comes into office. Well, you definitely have to fill the positions. And Washington certainly filled the positions from a bureaucratic standpoint as well. It's really important to remember that the department secretaries actually wear two hats. So the first hat is to oversee the staff underneath them in the departments. And then the second hat is to be an advisor to the president. And that first hat has kind of stayed the same, although, of course, it has expanded and um, institutionalized as the departments have grown much larger and have much bigger uh, portfolios in front of them. But the advisor piece is what has continued to evolve and change and really demonstrates a great deal of flexibility depending on who is in office. Because some presidents are really close to a few of their secretaries, some prefer family members or friends or business acquaintances or others outside of the administration. Usually it's some blend of both. But that flexibility, I think we can draw, even though, of course, so much has changed about our world from 1789, I think that flexibility, we can draw a direct line back to Washington because he really set up this concept that the president gets to decide who his closest advisors are going to be and how he's going to relate with them. And that is still true today with very little public and congressional oversight. Do you think it's fair to say that um, when Washington was using the cabinet, I mean, you sort of alluded to it, that um, the cabinet was meeting quite regularly around the neutrality crisis. And that was really what gave Washington the impetus to have everybody around the table and he needed everyone talking. 
Was there also something in the nature of that specific crisis that lent itself to being dealt with at a sort of cabinet level? I mean, obviously, it's it's better to have Jefferson and Hamilton than to have the, the B team in there. So it, it makes <laughs> more sense to r- rely on them there. But it, it was there also something about that particular crisis that when the nation got into a thing where you know, war was at stake, the, the existence of the republic was at stake, it wasn't something that Washington could just do one-on-one. He actually needed to, to rely on more brains. Is that fair? Or was it really just, no, the brains that were in there were really just the best. So why not have them all around the table? So Washington typically convened cabinet meetings when there was some sort of precedent that was new. And in 1791 and 1792, he convened a couple of meetings when he had to make a decision about something that was different or extraordinary or touched on a couple of different departments. And the neutrality crisis was the first really big incident that touched on multiple departments and was so complex that it really required months and months and months of discussion and debate and trying to sort of work through some of these issues. And uh, it wasn't the only one, however. In 1794, when the Whiskey Rebellion broke out in Western Pennsylvania, Washington did convene a number of cabinet meetings as well. But 1793 was particularly interesting because there was this conflict between France and, and Great Britain. So, of course, the United States was trying to stay out of that. So that is a Department of State issue. However, Neutrality is not as simple as just saying we're neutral. There's a lot of legal questions that come into play and um, a lot of questions about how you can keep your own citizens neutral and what court is going to hear those decisions and what attorneys are going to bring those cases and how are juries going to decide and what laws are those things supposed to be evaluated under. So there are lots of questions there. And so, of course, naturally, you would want the attorney general to be in on that. Now, because there is always the possibility of war, of course, that's probably going to bring in the Department of War as well. And finally, one of the big issues that was presented by the neutrality crisis was this concept of privateers. And privateers are basically private ships that are sailing under a license from a foreign government to go attack that government's enemies and then bring them back and sell them in local ports. And the French minister was arming a bunch of privateers in the port of Philadelphia. So he was buying weapons, he was buying supplies, he was outfitting the ship with defenses, sending it out into the Atlantic, attacking British ships, and then bringing them back in and trying to sell them off. You can imagine how the British minister, who was also in Philadelphia, felt about this subject. But because that has a lot of economic implications, of course, then that brings in the Department of Treasury as well. So it was a basically a big conflux of every single department and every single issue you can imagine and was one of the reasons that Washington needed to have all four people involved because they were trying to figure out solutions to these really challenging issues. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, fast forwarding to the, to sort of the present day and the future, I don't want to spend too much time on the present because uh, I've enjoyed uh, living in in the late 1700s for a while. <laughs> yeah. um, it's uh, I, I'm kind of envious of you, actually, that you get to spend this much time thinking about this stuff. Um, but what do you think about the future of the cabinet, especially? I mean, you note in the book that um, President Trump's cabinet has had one of, if not the highest turnover rates in the history of the American presidency. Um, how do you see the future of the cabinet? Do you think it's just going to continue along or do do you see any kind of changes for it um, in, in helping U.S. Pre- presidents govern? Um, as we've seen, even within the Trump cabinet, there are always rivalries. I mean, the the notion that Jefferson and Hamilton have this rivalry in Washington's cabinet, um, it feels like every single cabinet has folks that fight each other 
and are constantly trying to get their position through. And, and maybe that's a good thing for a president to have multiple options. Um, but I, I just wonder what you think about the cabinet as an institution going forward and whether whether it's going to have staying power or whether it has to evolve to 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 evolve alongside a changing world and American priorities in that world. It's a really tricky subject because the cabinet is at the center of, you know, so many of the big decisions and policies that affect our lives on a day-to-day basis. And yet as American citizens, we tend to sort of ignore the cabinet unless it's in the news because it's done something wrong. So I am sort of hopeful that the unprecedented turnover and turmoil that we've seen in this particular administration And I should be very clear that that is a numbers-based assessment. That is not a political assessment. People sometimes get very angry with me when I say that. And I am am just relaying facts here, people. It is a numbers-based decision. Um, People get upset at you? No, never. I know, right? I can't believe it. Um, Yeah, people got really upset about that one paragraph at the end of a 400-page book. But... um, (laughs) <laughs> At least they were reading that far, right? At you know, you got them were. on the It's true. You know what? That is a good point. They they made it to the end. Um, so, you know, I think that there probably will be some some change and some, uh, some reform. I think there are some things that are essential, first and foremost, being that the positions are really important and they deserve to be filled and they deserve to be filled by people who are knowledgeable and experienced and are equipped to handle those positions. So there is a Vacancies Act right now that requires the president to fill vacancies in cabinet and sub-cabinet level positions within, I think it's 210 days. But it's kind of toothless because Trump has walked all over it. And so my guess is that that will have some reform and that will be made a little bit more powerful because it is really important that if these department secretaries in their hat as advisors... It's important that those people are vetted by the Senate and the American people because they are in charge of really, really important decisions. I think the other thing that we're probably going to see is some reform of the actual departments. And I think this is right and just because as the country grows and the world evolves, what worked in you know 1789 doesn't necessarily work in 2020. And so, for example, after World War II, There was an evolution of there. We no longer have a war department that was broken up into a couple of different departments. And that made a lot of sense because our troops and our armed forces were much larger and more complex. I suspect that we will see some department reform as well. And I would hope that there would also be some congressional reform in terms of oversight of how those relationships work with the president. Executive privilege is, of course, a part of the executive branch and Washington asserted it for the first time in 1796. But just because it is a conversation with the president doesn't mean it should remain secret. In fact, I would say that most conversations with the president, unless they are national security, should not remain secret. And so I am hopeful that there is a little bit more oversight because I think that that would benefit everyone. Yeah, I find myself sympathizing with the American colonists a bit, um, not because the cabinet is a British idea, but just because you know, it's supposed to be a republic or a democracy. And um, the, the cabinet officials, as you pointed out, are extremely important. And we have no electoral say over them. I mean, you get to, you, we get to pick the president, we get to pick all these other representatives, but we, we don't actually have any democratic representation in the cabinet. As you said, it is really something that the president picks and it's you serve at the pleasure of the president. But there is so much power embedded with ruling those departments. And it's this weird sort of anti-democratic entity sitting at the center of American politics in a a way. It is. And I do wonder, I've been 
looking a little bit more into parliamentary systems, because I think there is something interesting to consider. The British prime minister really can't disregard his secretaries in the same way because they are of the same political coalition. And if that coalition disintegrates, then their political position disintegrates. And so not only are they elected through parliament and do they and they do have that that seat in in the legislative body, but they also wield a certain amount of authority over the system. And of course, that can bring its own challenges and and problems as well. But I do wonder, as you said, if we would be if the American people would benefit from having a little bit more electoral representation at those really powerful positions. Another thing I wanted to ask you was, and I wonder if this is is an accurate statement, uh, Jefferson obviously, by the end of, of his service in the cabinet, sort of thought that uh, you know, Hamilton had brainwashed Washington and felt like he needed to form his own political party to save the republic that he believed in. Um, but I, it doesn't seem to me that Jefferson went public with his baggage. He, he, didn't, he didn't air his dirty laundry until you know, Washington kind of stepped back. Part of that might be because of who Washington was. But um, it's been really striking to see how some of President Trump's cabinet officials, while he's still sitting in office, have come out and criticized him. I'm thinking especially of James Mattis, but he's not the only one. Um, and I wonder, is do you feel like that's normal or has some kind of taboo been broken? And is it good that that taboo was broken or is there is, is there supposed to be some kind of aura around the presidency itself where a cabinet level official really shouldn't be going after a sitting president like that just because they disagreed with policy decision making. It's a good question. And it's such an important concept because so much of the presidency is actually governed by norm and custom as opposed to written rule or regulation. And so one of the things that's been so striking about the last couple of years is that so many of those norms have been blown up and we're seeing sort of the effect on the system and having the opportunity to think about well, is that a norm we really like or is it a norm we are okay doing away with? Um, In terms of the Jefferson part of the question, you're right that he never out and out like took out an ad in the newspaper and said, you know, I am opposed to this political party. But his Or or, or, or even wrote a book saying like, (laughs) uh, hi, I've, I've written a book. Please pay me for my insights about how terrible George Washington was. It's true. Although, you know, he was... As you said earlier, he was funneling a lot of information. He at one point drafted a number of resolutions condemning Hamilton that the House was supposed to use, and everyone knew that he had written it, even though they were anonymous. So I'm not really sure how good he a good a job he did at actually keeping his criticisms quiet because everyone kind of knew that he was up to these shenanigans, and um, I guess he could, in theory, sort of deny it, but no one believed him. Um, In terms of more recent history, you're right that generally sitting secretaries do not condemn a president while he is still in office. And if they are going to write a book, they usually wait several years. They wait till the person is out of office. And sometimes they don't even do that. Um, Sometimes they just don't feel it is their place to publicly criticize, even if they disagree. So in that sense, I will say that the last couple of years have been a turning point and secretaries have been much more critical of the sitting president than they have in the past. The problem that I have with some of the criticism is the people, cabinet positions are inherently political positions. They are political appointments. And so you are no longer a general if you are going to be sitting in the cabinet. 
And so if you're going to write a book criticizing the president and then someone asks you a follow-up question, you can't say, oh, you know, I'm I'm a general. It's not appropriate for me to comment on politics <laughs> because of the uniform. Not only did you abandon the uniform, like you not abandon in a bad way, but you set aside the uniform when you took over the office, but then you wrote a book about it. So clearly you're comfortable talking about it. Um, and I, I think that you either have to be willing to answer the questions or keep your mouth shut. And so for me, I don't, Granted, this is a incredibly tense time, and so it's hard for me sometimes to separate what I think is appropriate in this moment from general political behavior. But I think that if people feel compelled to share their experiences because they think that they are contributing to the long-term safety of the nation, which I do think that some of these individuals are compelled to do, and I respect that then you have to be willing to answer questions and go all the way. So I think it's either hold your peace or fully engage in the conversation. And there can't really be that middle ground. Yeah. And when there is middle ground, that probably tells you something about the the complainant. Um, Lindsay, we're, we're getting close to time. I want to wrap up on a little curveball that I didn't share with you beforehand. I'm interested in knowing, well, it's a two-part question. Number one, who was your favorite cabinet member in Washington's cabinet um, and why? And then number two, who's your favorite cabinet member of all time in U.S. politics and why? Mm. Well, the nice thing about U.S. history is that there are a lot of really big characters to choose from. So you cannot have a boring answer. Um, In terms of Washington's cabinet, I usually cheat and I say two. So my favorite to study were Henry Knox and Edmund Randolph, primarily because they are lesser known. And so it was a little bit more of a challenge and fun to try and have an understanding of who they were. But they also didn't really go on to have a political career after their time in Washington's administration. And my sense of their identity as cabinet secretaries was that they were so much more focused on their loyalty to the president as opposed to a political career or political position. So I find that those relationships were so much more fascinating and sometimes harder to pin down, but also just really compelling. Um, And then in terms of American history in general, I would have to say John Quincy Adams, who was the Secretary of State under James Monroe. Um, I will be fully honest and say that my dog's name is John Quincy Dog Adams, Quincy for short. (laughs) Um, I find him to be such a such a remarkable character. He was so smart and so experienced and so knowledgeable and had so much training that he could not really bother to work with anyone because he was just so smarter than everybody else. So he was a really brilliant diplomat and a really terrible president. Um, But as secretary of state, he had few rivals. And if anyone is looking for some fascinating history reading, I highly recommend visiting with his diaries, which are all available online because he was incredibly self-deprecating and dry and funny. And so I think that he can he can keep me entertained for a pretty long time. Yeah, it's funny you picked him. Uh, why do you think he he became the worst president of all time? I mean, I don't want to say the worst, but he's, he's definitely sort of usually ranked in the lower, in the lower uh, echelon of U.S. presidents. Why was he so good as a cabinet member and, and not as a, as a president? Well, I think the skills that are required to be a really good secretary of state very rarely apply to being a very good president. I mean, I will say for to, to his credit, and this is an argument that um, other people have made before me, but both John Quincy Adams and his father, John Adams, had a ton of experience as a diplomat before coming into office. 
and they had a pretty had both had pretty terrible presidencies. And yet their presidencies left the United States on much firmer ground politically, or excuse me, not politically, diplomatically, and with other nations, they tended to leave their countries in more peaceful places than when they started. So, and that's not usually as appreciated as, you know, things like winning the civil war or, you know, winning the revolution, things like that. But the reason I think he was so brilliant as a secretary of state was because he had had experience in all of the major European diplomatic hubs. He had been in Spain and the Netherlands and Russia and London and Paris. And so he, and he also spoke all the languages and he knew a lot of the people. And so he just was able to negotiate from such a position of strength. And it was usually one-on-one with a diplomat, which was really his forte. He struggled when he had to try and form a coalition in Congress to actually get things done because he kind of found that sort of politicking beneath him. Whereas the diplomatic conversation was something he excelled at. Interesting. Um, Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on the books, The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. Are you going to put your feet up and, and drink a couple bottles of wine for a couple months, or are, are you already hard at work on your next on your next book? I am starting to work on it. Um, I have become convinced that cabinets are the very, very best way to understand the presidency and presidential leadership in particular, and are frequently not studied or understood as well as they should be. So cabinets are in my blood, and I am going to compare John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's cabinets because John Adams had one of the very worst, and Thomas Jefferson had one of the very best. And um, so really, it's a story about power and ego and ambition and how presidents manage those things, which has turned out to be a little bit of an evergreen story. And so I think it will be really fun to write and hopefully relevant. Well, great. I hope you'll come back on uh, when that's done. And thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchperspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.